As you're turning there, the children can head upstairs. We are continuing our series in First Peter, Stand Firm. We're in chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 1014. In chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Word has it that uh, this weekend there's a wedding going on, and uh, I'm I'm begging for your help here this morning. <laughs> a couple of things. Um, one is we need to move a tent, a tent that was out here that's now in a trailer over here. If if Wednesday night you would be free for about an hour, we're going to meet at Dave Palmer's farm to re-establish that tent, Lord willing. And we could use some bodies to do that. If you'd be able to do that, if you could just let me know, it would be helpful in case we'd have to change the time, we could get word to you about that. And then also, we, we hope you're able to come, and many of you have RSVP'd, some, some have got conflicts and can't, but you certainly are invited to come. It, but it would be helpful for us if you've not yet RSVP'd, just so that we can get the final tally for um, for food issues, if you could let us know that. You don't have to use the internet to do that. You can actually tell us, and unless I forget, I'll get it to my wife. Or to, you can tell my wife that's a sure way to get it to the right place. But with that, we want to look now at First Peter this morning and uh, continue in this series on standing firm. Um, just to bring you up to speed just a bit, remember it's been 30 years now at the writing of this book since the resurrection. The Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection, is writing this book now to a group of beleaguered Christians in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, they are facing some opposition. And they've gotten to the point now in this, um, this, this Christian journey that they're, they're far enough away from the resurrection that it's beginning to be a next-generation kind of thing being passed from one generation to another. And they really thought, as many of the, the uh, believers did in the early church era, that, that this was all going to happen pretty quickly. But it didn't and still hasn't. Um, the second coming of Christ has not occurred. It is still coming. And one day God will fully establish His kingdom. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you read this morning that Jesus is Lord, that He's the one true God. 
but not yet. And uh, that's where they found themselves, and that's where we find ourselves. That's why there's a, a little bit, uh, in fact, a lot of similarity between what was written to them then and for us now. Lots of parallels. Um, they were facing opposition, as I said, and that opposition really was centered in, I think, where that opposition will get increasingly centered upon us here, at least if we stand firm. If we waffle, maybe not so much, but if we stand firm where we ought to stand firm and the way we ought to stand firm, it will come. And I want you just to look there. We'll get to this text a little later in the series, but just look at chapter 2 for a minute. This is really the center of where that opposition is. And this is the center, I think, of what, where the opposition will really come on the church in America today or the Western church if they hold to this because this is what the Scripture says. Behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone, beginning of verse 6, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Christianity, biblical Christianity, fits that definition. There is an offense in biblical Christianity that is proper and right. And that offense centers in when we use words like the one true God. The things that we taught the children this week. There's one true God and that God is most clearly seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We've, we've said this a number of times but it bears repeating almost every week. I mean... Biblical Christianity does not teach pluralism. It does not teach that there are multiple roads to heaven. You can believe that, and we ought to be tolerant to let people believe that. But where I think we have to draw the line, and where I think we must, is what Scripture says, what biblical Christianity says. It's, it does not teach that. Now, those people may choose to say it's wrong, and they are able to do that. You may believe it's wrong. You may be sitting here and you believe it's wrong. But the point is, it's what it teaches. What the, what the Bible teaches is, there is a rock of offense. And the reason he is an offense is because he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. You have to decide whether that's a true statement or not. But what I... I don't and am not tolerant about and what we must not be is to say that Christianity teaches there is a, a plurality of ways. It does not teach that. You, you can't read the scriptures. You can't just read the scriptures and find that. It has to be superimposed upon them by others. And my fear, as I've said before, I say it again, my generation lived in a day and age uh, for the most part, where, where pluralism didn't win the day. But the air that we now live in, the air that we breathe, is, is that kind of air today. And I fear for the generations behind me because they don't have any way to balance that sometimes. That's, that's just what they hear all the time. 
And that is not the claims of Christianity. And so at that point, there becomes a rock of offense. And it is the offense, the message, not the messengers. We dare not be the offense. We should never be the offense. But the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation, the scripture says. Now, we dare not be the offense. We can be the offense by, by uh, moralistic kinds of ways, teaching not Christianity, but moralism. We can be an offense by becoming separatists. In other words, because of the fact that we, and our message is offensive, we just pull in and protect ourselves and, and take care of ourselves and guard ourselves in a kind of holy huddle kind of way. That should not be the way it is. Um, I, 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 I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want it to be misunderstood, but I, I think it is a good illustration here. The very first graduation that Aberdeen Christian High School had, I thought, what do you say at the very first graduation when you're asked to speak at the very first one? I chose to take this approach there, which I believe about Christian education. Christian education is... For some, it's the right thing. Homeschooling for some is the right thing. Public schooling for some is the right thing. I believe that. You have to choose which one is best for you and your environment, your children, all of those things. And I think we live in a church that believes that. We have it, we have it modeled all three ways. But as you're speaking of Christian education, I think the thing that we have to be careful about is that Christian education is not just a way to pull our kids in to protect them from the world. In fact, what I spoke about that very first time is actually you have had all kinds of resources poured into you now, seniors. All kinds of things poured into you that you can go out. You can go out and be salt and light to your communities. Go out and influence them with the kingdom. It's never, never, whether it's Christian schooling or church, we never pull in. That was never, never the response of being, the message being an offense. It, it is an offense, but we go. We go and we go this way. We go and the text says it here and you find it here down at the very end of it where it says this. Though you have not seen him in verse 8, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We ought to go that way. We ought to go with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory and full of beauty to a world that is longing for that. And we're going to talk about what that is a bit. What undergirds that kind of joy. But it's described here as inexpressible and full of glory. I think part of the meaning of that is a joy that bewilders the world. A joy that is not rooted in present circumstance. A joy that goes beyond that, that transcends that because it knows something that causes that. That's the way we ought to be. That's the kind of people we ought to be. Though our message at times is an offense, is a stumbling block, because it has to do with Jesus Christ. We ought never to be that stumbling block. We ought to be the, the saver of the world. We ought to have a winsomeness about us that engages our culture. Never 
an attitude that I pull back to protect myself somehow because of the offense, because of the opposition. I think that's what Peter was saying to his people here. Yes, there's opposition. No, Christ hasn't come back yet. But, but, stoke the joy. The joy that bewilders the world. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about that. What, what do we build into our lives? What do we remember that causes that to happen? Now, the first thing I would say in today's text, that it is not a joy that is rooted in circumstance or immediate circumstance. Look what it says. Look where we pick up from last week. It says in verse 6, In this, all that we talked about last week, in this you rejoice, which is basically the gospel, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It's not the lack of difficulty that this joy sprouts up in. It's in the midst of that. That's why it bewilders the world. It's a joy that ought not to be there because of present circumstance. And, And the bewilderment is, how can it be? How can there be a joy? Now, sometimes it's a tempered joy. I've used the term sometimes it's a wintry joy. But it's a joy. There's something there that is bewildering. Now, this is what I think must go into our lives. We must remember. We must know. It comes out of the text here. In order to have that kind of a bewildering joy that the world cannot explain. First of all, we must remember that life is broken. You must remember it's broken. You must remember that you live in a fallen world and that fallenness comes to us in various ways. It says in the text this morning that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It doesn't make them specific. It can be kind, very, it can be lots of different ways in which this world pokes you. It pokes at you. And that can come lots of different ways from lots of different directions. So it's not about circumstance. Let, let me read something. I, I, I think it will have good application to us here, but listen, it's by Wayne Gruden. Wayne Gruden, if you're not familiar with him, many of you are because we had a class that he basically taught through, through media to us, some, some of you. But Wayne Gruden is, is probably one of the leading theologians today uh, that people would read and follow. But Wayne Gruden comes out of a charismatic background. In other words, a, a, a group that would believe that the gifts have not ceased. And, and so he comes out of a background that at times, I think, has, has, uh, has gone too far to one degree. This, this charismatic movement itself, I think it's come back more to mainstream, more to center now. Um, but in the regards of, of what, the, what the promises are to believers, what the pro- new covenant promises are, and listen to what he writes. This, this may be helpful to some of you. When, when we talk about that we live in a broken world, we live in a broken world, and part of what happens and where we can get in trouble if we don't get that right is we try to bring too much of the kingdom in. The kingdom has come, but the kingdom hasn't fully come. The now and not yet of the kingdom. When Jesus came, the kingdom came. But it's not fully inaugurated yet. And some people want to inaugurate more of it before it's time to inaugurate it. And therefore get the promises of God wrong. And so have trouble trusting God or get disillusioned with that God. Listen to what Gruden says. 
He says Peter here, and he's speaking of verse 4, a text that we talked about last week where it says that uh, Christ has risen from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the description of, of the inheritance that Christians have. But in reference to verse 4, he reminds his readers that in the new covenant, God's rewards are less material, physical, and earthly. And when he says in the, in the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant, as opposed to the promises that were made for the nation Israel, many of them, that maybe don't carry over. Sometimes we want to take those promises that were made to a specific nation and carry them over and say they're for all believers. And you have to be careful in that. You have to be sure you get the promise right. We, we want to trust the promises of God, but just make sure it's a promise that God made to you. Because if you start trusting a promise He didn't make to you, then He has no obligation to fulfill it because He didn't make it. It was made to a different people, a different group. But listen to what it says. Peter here reminds his readers that in the New Covenant, God's rewards are less material, physical, and earthly. There is less emphasis on a present material prosperity as a reward. For God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, it says in James. A statement which would never and could not appear in the Old Testament. The enjoyment of physical health is also less prominent. For through our outer nature is wasting away, the scripture says, our inner nature is being renewed every day comes out of the book of Corinthians. There is less emphasis, too, on freedom from persecution, for it says in Scripture, if you are a reproach for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, out of First Peter. Having many children is not regarded in the New Testament as a necessary sign of God's favor, for both marriage and celibacy are his gifts, it says in Corinthians. Christians should not be dismayed at this relative lack of present material rewards, however, for faith recognizes a new covenant reward as something far greater. And this is it. A present sufficiency, sufficiency for material needs. In other words, Christ Jesus will meet all of our needs. My, my basic assumption about that passage is our need is to have all the grace we need in any circumstance to live for the glory of God. To some people, they may, they may get all the grace they need to starve to death for the glory of God. Just ask the people, the Christians in Sudan, to not, to not curse the name of God as they die of starvation for the name of Christ. So, the new covenant reward as something far greater. A present sufficiency for material needs out of Philippians. A present spiritual fellowship with Christ out of 1 Peter. And a future inheritance, both material and eternal, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Just as God in the old covenant encourages people to look forward to the future Messiah with faith, so he now encourages us for whom the Messiah's coming is a fact of history to look forward to our full heavenly inheritance. Here's a great comfort for every new covenant believer. So we do not lose heart for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison because we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Life is broken. This world pokes us and pricks us and sometimes severely, sometimes with great great difficulty we bear up under some of those various trials 
But we also know this as believers, that there is design in that distress. Yes, life's broken. Brokenness comes to both believer and unbeliever. But for the believer, I don't say this for the unbeliever. I can't. But for the believer, I can say there is design. There's design in our distress for our good. There's design in it, but I can't say it's for our good for the unbeliever. God has a design in our distress for our good as believers to refine the genuineness of our faith. It says it in this text. In verse 6, In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a promise that there's design in it. Design for your good to show the genuineness of your faith. God wills that. There's two texts, two things I want you to look at in 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, you turn with me there. You need to see these texts. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. Look at it there. This is about design. This is where I get it. This is where it comes from. It says this. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Suffering. Grievous trials. That's what he's talking about. They're God's will. Do you see it? If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. And then you go over to chapter 4 and verse 19. And again it says this, let those, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Those who suffer according to God's will, who have various trials that come. And again, that's a broad spectrum. It doesn't define what those trials are. But some of you are experiencing them this morning. And I want to say to you, there is, there is design in your distress for your good, that the genuineness of your faith might be refined. We can trust God in that. Let me read what another says in talking about this kind of thing. And, and he says it rightly. This is what he says. Now I know that this raises a painful and troubling question, this, this uh, design idea, design and distress. We are not playing games here. We are talking about your soul and my real life this very day. Does God will to break up your marriage? Does God will your cancer, your homosexual orientation, the rebellion of your child, the loss of your job, the threatening chaos in Russia or the Congo or Somalia or Guinea. I will give you my answer, which I believe to be a biblical one based on the text, like I just read to you, those two texts. The answer is no. God does not will it, and, and, yes, He does. No in the sense that He does not delight in the pain for its own sake. He does not command sin or approve of sinning. But yes, He does will that these things be in the sense that He could prevent any of those things, but sometimes does not, but rather guides them. Because of higher designs than the destructiveness of sin and the deceitfulness of Satan or the painfulness of suffering. When Christians suffer for doing right, 
Sin is happening to them. But 1 Peter 3.17 says that sometimes God wills this to happen. We just looked at that. He does not endorse or approve sinning. But He can and does will that sinful acts come about for His own holy designs. Now this is, this is the supreme example of that. This is a supreme example of that. If you're, if you're thinking in your own context, oh, how can that be for me? Look at the supreme example of that. When Christ was murdered on the cross, and He was murdered, it was sin. But God willed that to happen. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to bruise Him. And by that will we be saved. There's other places in the book of Acts that the people who crucified Jesus, they only did what God had allowed them to do. Those are difficult things, but important things. We must, we must know that there is design in our distresses for our good. It is a bedrock principle that you must, you must let be at the foundation of whatever experience you're going through now, whatever experience you are going through right now, that there is design in it, that God did not sleep and slumber to the point where it snuck in and He didn't catch it. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. Nothing, nothing passes Him that He doesn't let pass. Now, why is this important? I just want to stop for a minute. This is incredibly important. Because the Bible says it is about the genuineness of our faith. It is about making sure of the genuineness of our profession. You know this, don't you? You know there are people who profess who the Bible says will not inherit the kingdom. The issue is the genuineness of that profession. The genuineness. And, and the genuineness of that profession is shown, is refined in the midst of grievous trials that come. God designs to use them. And He does use them to weed out those who profess and are in the kingdom and those who profess and aren't in the kingdom. Peter's an example of that. It's amazing. The, the example is Peter. Peter wrote this. Don't forget. He wrote this. He's writing about various trials that come to show the genuineness of our faith. Now, look at Peter's circumstance. Turn with me if you have again of your Bibles. If you want to do that, um, you, you turn to Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 33. And as you're doing that, let me, let me read a portion a little earlier in Luke to you. And then I'm going to go there. This whole idea that not everyone who professes is in the kingdom. Parable of the sower, one of the most one of the most disturbing passages, I think, of all of Scripture, where it says this And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. In other words, some just had no effect. Some of the seed that was sown had no effect at all. 
Then secondly, and some fell on the rocks and it grew up. There was profession, but it withered away because it had no moisture. Evidently wasn't true. And then some fell on the thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Some professed who didn't profess later because other things choked it out. And then finally it says, And some fell in good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things. He called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear that grievous trials are there to show the genuineness of our faith. And for a pastor, this is incredibly incredibly poignant for me. I see people who make professions of faith. I've watched them over these 30-some years make professions of faith, and they're not here now. They're not here today. What happened? What's going on? I've, I've observed difficulties come into their life. Grievous trials come into their life. And, and in essence, though only God can judge fully, it appears that the genuineness of their faith did not survive. It wasn't genuine. Only we know at the end, when it's all said and done, we aren't the judge, God is. But there seems to be indication again and again in Scripture that some profess, but but don't profess in the end. And the reason is that the genuineness was not there. Now, I believe he who begins a good work in somebody's life brings it to completion. That's why I take you to Peter. Peter in chapter 22 of Luke. Remember Peter? Remember the author of this? In Luke chapter 22, look at what Jesus prayed for Peter the night of his betrayal. Beginning at verse 31 of chapter 22, it says this. This is the prayer. This is the statement Peter made. Simon, Simon, Peter, behold, Satan demand to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He might snuff out your faith, that he might eat your faith, that he might kill your faith, that he might choke it out. But I prayed for you. This is Jesus. I prayed for you. I prayed to the Father that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter made his profession or his, his statement where he said, I'll not deny you. If everybody else denies you, I won't do it. And Jesus said, Peter, I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. That's an incredibly poignant statement again. It, it, it was made that that Jesus was praying for him. There was a genuineness in Peter, even though he faltered, that he didn't stay there. It wasn't the end. His faith wasn't eaten. You see the genuineness, the grievous trials that came to the disciples, that came to Peter to bring forth the genuineness of his faith, to refine him like gold is refined. Because faith is more precious even than gold to God. There's design in your distress. 
The design is that the genuineness of your faith might show forth. It breaks my heart when I see people who go through difficult times and rather than than seeing design in their distress, now that doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt incredibly in their heart and soul. Those things that broke them. <coughs> but in the end, in the end, they don't raise a clenched fist at God. In the end, the genuineness comes through. Well, life is broken. There's design in our distress. And thirdly, we need to understand the brevity of life. This passage talks about, it says in verse 6, it says in verse 6, Now for a little while, for a little while you shall have grievous trials. For a little while might be years. You might have a chronic medical condition that lasts 50 years. But the Bible says, for a little while. In the span of all eternity, in the span of what our inheritance is going to be, the span of, of eternity, the Bible, it's, it's for a little while. For a little while. We all need to know. We all need to know. We all need to have something that tells us about the brevity of life often. For me, I've shared it with you. The brevity of life came home to me a number of years ago when I realized, even though I may have been in this pulpit for 33 or 34 years now, almost every Sunday morning, that I can easily pass away. My family can plan a funeral. My family can have that funeral. And my family can even begin to pick up the pieces and somebody else will be here the next week. That's how brief it is. That's how, how quickly it can go. We all need things like that to remind us of the brevity of life. You need something like that in your life. And in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hard things, the brevity is in comparison. It's in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, the, the things that we're looking to, the length of that. And then finally, this last thing, and I close with this, that the reward is great. The reward is great and it is sure. It is a living hope. The scripture says that that reward will result in something or that, that uh, difficulty will result in something. It will result in a reward. Worship team is going to come and we're going to move into worship even as we hear this this morning. But listen to what it says. Listen to the result. The result of that refining, the result of that difficulty is this. In this you rejoice now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in this, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Most commentators don't think that is talking about praise to God from us, but rather His praise to us. His praise and, and uh, glory and honor. 
to us. You see, that's what is the result of all of that. That He delights in those who trust Him. You see, that's what it's about, trusting Him. Trusting Him. Trusting Him that there is design in those difficulties, in those things that press in upon us. A design for our good that causes us not to reach up and shake our fist at Him, Without ceasing, I put, oh, there may be times when we are tempted, but we don't stay there. Eventually, because of the genuineness of our faith and what we know about our God and His faithfulness because He prays for us, He intercedes at the right hand of the Father, not just for Peter, but for us. That clenched fist begins to loosen up. And it doesn't stay there forever. God help us to be that kind of people. A people who know those things. A people who lets that design work out its purpose. A people who glory in their Redeemer who is continually redeeming us. And one day, the scripture says, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Let's stand and worship together.